Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Good morning and welcome to Yowie Central. You're listening to 94.9 Main FM and I'm Sarah Bignall. This is the community radio show where we bring you the latest on Yowie research in Australia and we delve into the endlessly fascinating realm of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, cryptozoology from here and around the world. We also go into all sorts of mysterious, weird stuff, paranormal encounters, UFO sightings, you name it, we go there. This week, I'm bringing you a fascinating chat I had with Tony. Tony's a Yowie enthusiast and a former zookeeper who's now based over in Woodridge in Western Australia. He has some really interesting ideas regarding the, the protection of our hairy friends and I'm really looking forward to sharing this chat with you. Here's Tony. Thanks for reaching out to Australian Yowie Research. Tony, I really appreciate it. You'd asked us for some advice and about an expedition that you're hoping to to mount. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What's the objective of the of the expedition? Well, there's a bit of kind of like a, a background context to it. So my background was is zookeeping. Um, I was a zookeeper for 10 years, um, predominantly with predatory animals, so like crocodiles, big cats, um, like snakes. So that that's always been my passion. So I'm 29 years old now, and that's been my main thing. 
And I think I did a little bit of work with primates. And to be honest, I actually avoided primates as much as I could because of just how tricky they are to work with. I mean, they're very intelligent and I just stuck to the big predatory animals because you knew they wanted to eat you and that was fine. <laughs> Whereas with the primates, there was ulterior motives and they were, if you were to work with primates, you don't get to work with all the animals. You've got to just focus on them. And so they were always a very interesting species, I suppose. Now, when I had left uh, the, the zoo industry, I'd moved to Western Australia and I don't know if it was just by fluke. It was this missing 411 in America. It was just, I got interested in these strange disappearances that, I think it was Dave Politis, and he, mm-hmm. he never he never alluded to anything at all that he thought it was. He explained the facts, and I thought that was great, because for me, I'm usually very skeptical and critical of anything that's just not normal, which most people are, and I think over time, if there was more than enough evidence, I would at least be open to what something is. So, so for me, the whole Yowie and Bigfoot phenomena it's not that I go, yes, they're definitely there, they're definitely not. But there is just so much evidence that whatever the something is, I believe then that what I've found is is connected to that something. So it's, I don't know, I've never seen a, a big hairy thing or anything like that that I would say I've seen. I know it's there, but the evidence that I've seen just throughout the last kind of say, three or four years has just kind of been mounting. And I think given the digital kind of age of technology now, just the things that are popping up are more and more and more. So where I got into it, like I literally have started to get all the little bits of camera gear and equipment just to kind of see what's going on. And what really triggered it was after I'd been watching the missing 411, I'd realized that Dave Politis had actually been paid by two individuals to investigate Bigfoot, to find out some evidence if it was real and there was DNA and things like that. So I kind of went, oh, wow, I didn't know that these missing people and these anomalies and, and the profile had any relation to this whole Bigfoot thing. So that to me was a bit, you know, that was crazy. And I got interested in it and I received the call from my friend in Woodridge. Now that's actually where I'm living now. And this call was about a year ago and it was on his birthday where him and two other guys at about six o'clock in the evening were outside and they could hear this bizarre calling, like a, a sound. And they still to this day can't explain this sound it was more of a feeling so they could all said they could all hear it but they could all feel it more and it was coming from different directions and would get closer and go away and it was they said to me and the way they explained it was that it was like a pulsating sound so it felt like there was three things around them projecting a feeling or sound onto them and and then going backwards and forwards and then eventually moving past and they said to me, they called me up. Now, these are not superstitious guys. They are just, what kind of animal was it? And they were all intrigued. And they rang me with my background and said, all right, well, what animal was it? So at the time, I was kind of like, oh, gee, it doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard of. And I had a look at, like, local wildlife. And I'm kind of, I was thinking maybe some sort of bird um, that was, you know, but there's no bird that I could figure out that would essentially launch it was like a tactical thing to approach an animal and then to use some sort of sonar or, or voice to know where that other predatory animal is to then pass it. And so that's what it felt like to me the animal was doing. However, I couldn't figure out which animal it was. So look, we, we had all just eventually just forgot about it. Nothing was done. And uh, that was where then I rang him up one day and I'd sent him a video of a I think it was one of the, the Yowie sighting reports that was actually in Woodridge in 1985, I believe. 
And when I sent it to him, he called me straight away and said, we've all literally just spent the last few days looking at this. And we weren't going to ring you and say that because we thought you'd be like, oh, idiots. And I said, well, look, there's a there's something there. So we'll, we'll have a look and kind of see where we go and, and whatnot. So I started to then go up here a bit more. And now I've just moved up here and there's a river nearby and the area is pristine. Like it, it's, it, it should be a class A nature reserve. Um, they're blocking development there because there's just so many strange. It's a beautiful place, but in a place of such beauty that's not been touched. There, there's little hidden things that you just don't know. When I go out on the kayak um, and I spend quite a lot of time out alone. And I go out on the kayak and I just go down this river. It meanders and I found this island. And it's called, I think it's called Diamond Island, something like that. And I went on it. I got on the right side of the bank, and as I was walking over across, I had seen that in the water, probably about two feet in, there was just this impression. And I was kind of looking at it going, oh, I wonder what kind of animal that is. I wonder if something's buried into the sand, and then as it's come up, it's pushed something out. And I was thinking maybe an oblong turtle or or something along those lines. But what was really bizarre is that the, the river mouth at the end has like a sandbank. Now, recently, that sandbank has broke, and we've had... The most rain Perth has seen in 20 years we've had in the last two weeks. So for me, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, there's a profile point, a significant weather event. Now, near this river, you've also got the granite fields, which is another profile point. I'm just referring back to the missing 411 because that's where I was trying. I look for things in an area that are similar to what someone else has already documented. So these characteristics were there. And I looked into it and I went, that could be a print. So as I ran my hand down into it, it had that, I don't know if it's called the I don't think it's a dermal ridge, but there's a, a center ridge. A mid, very... mid-tarsal break. Yes, yes. That that there is just a really significant thing that in animals you just – that print, to be able to do that is is how they're kind of their physiology of walking. So that was the first thing that drew my attention. And as I ran my hand down into it, there was like the, the indentation or impression of where the, you know, a toe would be and the sand was very compacted in there. And I was like, wow. I'm like – so at this stage, I'm kind of just a bit taken back by it because part of me is being skeptical, but part of me is really excited that, you know, this, you know, I've seen all the thing about the big foot and finding prints and I've seen all these other ones. And now here was this little, you know, uh, encounter as such and seeing it. I was like, wow. And then as I looked up and looked over to the right, going through the water, there was another one. And this one, I believe it was a, if it was a foot, it'd be a right foot. And it wasn't as clear as the first one. So I took pictures and took some videos. And in the explanation for it, I kind of said that chimpanzees are, you know, they are consciously aware of their tracks. So you'll see that chimps, when they're coming into contact with even um, other chimpanzees or even gorillas, if they're trying to hide their tracks, they'll walk up in trees. They'll, they'll, they'll navigate via trees. They'll come down the trees onto rocks. Um, and if need be, they, they are aware that if they leave a footprint in the sand to move it or they'll actually wade through water. Now, for predatory animals, usually they'll be up on a high point, And what they do is, and this isn't any sort of um, six, well, a, a six sense that animals have. It's not kind of, if there's a weather coming in and you're on the highest point, animals have that kind of intuitive nature to stay on high ground. However, a lot of predatory animals for instance, the Siberian tiger, when up in the high mountain, if he sees weather coming in, they'll use the cover and they'll come down the mountain. Because if you've got, say, heavy rain or snowfall, it covers your tracks. So these animals will actually come down 
towards the river mouths or towards your water systems or your, your granite fields where they can camouflage in. And then with that weather event that's happening, it makes it very difficult for other animals to see them. So for me, I was thinking, well, these animals or whatever these things are that are walking about out here, if you were trying to avoid being tracked, you would walk through the water just in that kind of, you know, maybe knee deep for a human, because as the water, then the sediment comes, it will cover your tracks. But because we'd had all this water and it burst the banks, the water level was a lot lower. So it didn't actually fully conceal the track like it would have done if it had been a week ago. So it was a bit of a catch-22 where the animal sees the weather event, comes down to hunt and, or, or to use that cover to feed. However, it didn't count on this bank being broken and then its tracks were unearthed. And so that to me would show every animal that's predatory, they're very difficult to find, but they make mistakes or, or they don't take things into consideration consciously because of, well, they, they may be a, a primitive being. So for me, finding that was pretty interesting. Now, from there, I'd went back a few days later with my trail cam. So I'd had the trail cam there previously. And I, when I went there and seen um, the prints, I'd put it back up again. And every time my trail cam, either the button wasn't on right, it was pictures of me. And someone had actually said to me on one of these forms, I don't know if it was someone, maybe Dan, and I'd message saying I was putting out this trail cam and he was like, don't be surprised if it's been fiddled with or it's not working or whatever. And I actually put it into a Malaluka tree, a paperback. So I actually made a little indentation from the dead bark and I put the tree, I put the camera into it and concealed it. And it was in a really good spot where I'd left the, you know, the, the sand nice and flat and I'd left some bits of fruit and that that I'd actually went out there with. Um, and then I've come back and yeah, the camera's still there now. I have to go back and check it again. But so far, there's just been it's been triggered numerous times, um, all hours of the night, but there is nothing on it. Um, so I found that to be really strange. But in the surrounding trees, I actually brought a friend back there this time because there was two places I want to check out. Now, I'm pretty adventurous, but there was two spots that if I was going to go there, I wanted someone to at least know that my last known whereabouts were heading up because I think there was a cave system. So on the top of, it's probably one of the higher points surrounding the river, you could see there was limestone rock exposed. And I was thinking, gee, that looks very cavey, but it was a very hard, very steep to get up there. And there was no obvious animal tracks, which another thing was, if you have a significant amount of rocks on a high point, you would imagine that there's going to be animal trails going up to it. There was absolutely nothing. So I wanted someone there to watch me go up it in case I had an accident or got nailed by a snake on the way up or just something, because we're, we're quite a bit of the ways out. And the paperback trees that were down on this island, if you look about nine foot up, there was the paperback itself looked like it had been cut with a scissors, like flat cuts. Now, the guy who I went with this time, he's actually a carpenter. And I said to him, I was like, how would you cut the paperback so straight like that and all the paperback that was cut i pulled it off the tree and it came off in shards and bit but then i climbed up into the tree and i tore it in half and it was identical and i said to him i was like oh well this looks like it had been torn and he was like yeah but you've got the wind and i said yeah but the wind would be hitting on say the north face it would cut it there but the trees that then also, these were north-facing, south-facing, east-west. There was these perfect bits of it cut off. And I kind of said, I said, I have no idea whether an animal's eating the paperback, whether they're using it for something. But I said, it's definitely being torn off. And it's quite high up in the tree where if you were walking around there normally looking at our eye level, you, you wouldn't see it. 
when you kind of put yourself another three or four foot up in the air and start looking around there next thing you're you're in a whole different place there's all sorts of trees torn and branches sticking in and if you get up to that level within the the foliage it's actually you can then go over the thicket and this was the thing that i thought was amazing was that i couldn't get through the ticket on the floor but if i went up into the tree i had a good six or seven foot of clearance now i'd have to obviously climb through it but it was way easier six or seven foot up to get through this thicket than it was on the ground and that for me was another thing where if i was navigating as an animal that's kind of the side where i'd want to be on you know it's it's isolated enough up there but with urban sprawl it's going to be the next place where you it's coastal um, and development so i think all up when i kind of looked at it was that i didn't want to then i'd be i'm fairly certain that there there is definitely something out there to be found that would be of similar to what all the other evidence has suggested although i can't say i've cited anything but I think as well is that if I did have an encounter, I did see, and I'm an avid hunter as well, like feral pigs and things like that. And in my family and my my dad as well, and I talked to him about it and he's like, oh, if I see one, I'd, I'd shoot, you know, and I'd kind of looked at it and I was like, I don't think you could. You know, I, I think something like this is so special that you would leave it alone on the land. And I think the more I try to investigate and do things, I'm now kind of going on a bit where I'm like, I kind of just want to not leave it alone, but be acknowledged that there is something there like more in the traditional way is that knowing there is something there and accepting that it is what it is and not trying to go over because i was still even about giving the talk as such and and, and sharing the information i was kind of worried that i don't want it to be something where you know it just it creates this massive festival of people going out and things like that because you know people have done it before and when the evidence is mounting those people you'll never hear from them you know the people that have really not just had encounters but can actually then be out at peace and be somewhat interactive with this animal on whatever conscious level you'll never hear those people's stories and that's because you know and i can see from that point of view the furthermore that i delve into this i can see it going to that point where it'd be like if you um if you found one of the last surviving species of a tiger and it's if its days are numbered doesn't matter what you do or who you who you show it to nature is going to take its course However, you know? Yeah. And the last thing you'd want to do is go out and hunt that poor tiger down if there's only one left. <laughs> so Yeah. Alan, we're, ve- we're very much at Australian Yowie Research, very much against the idea of shooting them, uh, of harming them in any way. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's that's uh, there's no, well, as, there's as, no as need. humans, we do that, don't we? We, we, we well, want exactly. to just kill we it. <laughs> I know. Isn't it terrible? I'm ashamed of our, of, of my, my species at times, not all the time, but sometimes. Well, um, but, uh, for that though, one of the things that I've thought about a lot, which was, I would say it's probably going to be really controversial and it's Professor Graham Webb. He is a crocodile scientist. He's I think within the world, he would be the foremost expert renowned on crocodiles. And I spent quite a bit of time working for him in that capacity. And for me, with the the, the Yowie and with all the evidence and with that, I think the main thing was not so much to prove visually or physically its existence. But if you were, if the Yowie population, I think I've heard it somewhere before, they would estimate it to be about 3,000 animals. Now, that that's actually probably a very um, lower figure given that, Population of Australia, I think it's like 24.7 million. And population of feral pigs is probably about 25 million. And most Australians have never seen a feral pig. 
So if you only had 3,000 of the Yowies, the, the odds of people interacting and, and seeing them, it, it's, it's quite rare. And, and to go even one further, on every coastal part of Western Australia, you have thousands upon thousands of snakes. Now, the thing is, snakes have been here a lot longer than us, and the bigger a snake gets, it means it's older, it means it's been around longer, it means it's somewhat savvy to be around humans. You know, snakes do very well in urban areas and not don't be seen. But every now and again, they get caught. But there's millions of snakes in Australia. Now, if there was only 3,000 of these yowies, statistically speaking, the odds of you having an encounter, I mean, to give you the math on it, it, it is rare yeah. to even have anything. And so for me, it was if the yowie was to then be confirmed and, and, and it, there was someone out of the control just said, right, here's one that we've caught and we've got it in this thing. To me, it was more important to have them protected before they even became verified. Because the sustainable use program, what Graham Webb used with crocodiles, brought the species of saltwater crocodiles from the 1950s. Um, they were, you know, World War II. There was about 150,000 crocodiles. And by the 1970s, when they got made protected, there was about 5,000. And the thing is with animals, if you economically, if, if you had a tour guiding thing out there where you did yowie watching, or and, and then you have these things, was that to get more people involved in the cultural belief as opposed to actually seeing it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, religion is the same. You can't see half these things, but we believe in it. Yeah. So the same, kind of, the same kind of context is that with the Yowie, I believe that the best way going forward to conserve, even if it's not a physical thing, but to conserve the, the ideals and the theories was to, they have to economically benefit local people. And this is probably one of the best ways of conserving land and actually getting people engaged because people don't want to save animals that they love. People want to save animals that make them money. And if you have, the, you know, I've worked with tigers and crocodiles. And if I told people that if you were to farm tigers, you would get the population back up and people in India would stop being eaten, they'd still call you raving mad. But with a crocodile, they sustainably harvest them from the wild. They do tour guides in the wild. You can eat them. You can wear them. They've got multiple uses. And that brought the animal back from the brink of extinction. And we educated people on how to be around them. And so 50 years ago, the average European, if you had told them about a crocodile, that would be just as, as wild and wacky as explaining a yowie. You know, and it's as time goes on, things that were once strange and foreign and, and not real eventually become very normal and very rational and and this is just what's happened throughout the dawn of history and like behaviors now like we're i believe we're in a time where everything is changing so drastically i i just read the other day that chimps were seen documented on two occasions attacking gorillas wow now that's 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 um from an ecological standpoint i've always known about animals but i've never even known of chimps and gorillas even interacting and that was to then see that not only did they interact, these chimps actually hunt down these gorillas and kill them. But they are they can be peaceful together, but at times they go to war. Now, for a lot of people, they might be like, okay, well, that's pretty amazing and, and, and awesome. But if you look deeper into it, it's, it's phenomenal. But if you look at the Darwin's theory of evolution is that, you know, we had come from chimps and, and evolved into us. That's very different from a lot of the people within the crocodile industry that I've spoke to. And they believe essentially that, and, and one is just as crazy as the other, but a crocodile has like a saltwater crocodile has always been a saltwater crocodile. Now, 
140 million years ago is essentially how long crocodiles have been on the planet. So Starkosuchus, being this mega huge crocodile, lived alongside the saltwater crocodile. However, Starkosuchus was the apex predator of that time. However, being the apex predator then is actually what led to it becoming extinct because it was too big. And now the saltwater crocodile would be seen as king. But those animals lived alongside each other. Now, in what way, shape or form they evolved into each other or have they always been separate? And this is where the whole idea that I'm fascinated by the Yowie is that people will used to refer to it as the missing link. And you have this, we've all seen the image of, of the linear where you've got the, uh, like the Denisovians and Neanderthals, and then you've got the, the chimp and we start to walk upright. Yes. Yeah. I always imagine if that picture, if they turned around and faced away from us and they all started walking, the ones that would get to the end would be the chimp, the gorilla, the human, and for all intents and purposes, Australopithecus, uh, or Australopithecus gigantus. So I believe that all these animals, to an extent, unless we could prove it otherwise, because we can't, it's a theory of evolution, is that at one point, the Denisovians and the Neanderthals and this, they all lived together. They all interbred. They all were aware. You know, you could have essentially had uh, the, I think it's Gigantus black eye, living alongside mm. and interacting. Because speech wasn't a thing back there. We all communicated very much whether it was consciously or with more movement and verbal. And yes, we would have had arguments and yes, there would have been matings. No different to the world we live in now. Because the, to me, humans, if you look at us as a species, we're so diverse to the point that the only other animal that is as diverse as humans, really, that's, that's obvious, is dogs. And the only reason, dogs came, they reckon, just from wolves. But eventually then you have this massive branch out. And the reason why we have that branch is because we were altered by humans selectively bred but you could say that well which came first the wolf or was it this type of wolf or was it this you know so it's very hard to have a linear pattern like the the world isn't isn't as straightforward and linear it's 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 very lateral so it would make more sense that whatever created all these species they were the exact same and they haven't changed all that much even in terms of evolution and, and, and humans watching us We've evolved more technologically than physically. You know, physically, our characteristics change just with one mating. You can, and that's not so much evolution. That's the, the, the characters that were best suited for the making of that genetic DNA strand for a child. So if the owie as such is just living alongside humans, no different to how other animals like hyenas form a symbiosis with lions. They, they live alongside each other, but they want to remain unseen because they aren't, their interactions are never usually positive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so with, with that in mind, with that that you've told me, you, you want to start doing some field research over in WA, but with a view to sustainable use or protecting them, so and that culture change is that that's, yeah. That's Pr- the protection, protection is key, um, but in order to protect something, it needs to be valuable. Mm-hmm. And to create something of value, it has to benefit the local economy. And this is where your traditional landowners and just your 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 local families um, community engagement is key. You know, I live in a place where there's only 300 people, and I've only just moved there from a place that's got some 15,000 people. So. When you have a community that bands together, I wanted to set up um, probably like more for the younger or the education, so like a scouts. So I was going to set up a small scouts and teach the kids essentially how to navigate through the land, the the points around their land, and just the importance of protecting it and, and, and certain ways that we can just minimize our impact on the land, but still go out and have fun and sustainably harvest and, and just be more in touch with it. Um, because safety out there is, is key. Like my one of my big passions that I was always interested in is is the, the missing four one one. Is to me, people going missing under those circumstances, that should be a, a, like a top priority. Because even for me going out, I am so conscious of the fact that if my daughter gets out of line of sight and she hits that thicket on the bush, well. Yeah. I don't want to be the next person that's then trying to go, oh, I don't know where my kid is. It's all just vanished. And like we've had it happen in WA. We've had three cases and then there's another case going on, which is, um, uh, the, the, I think it's the Tiernan case. Like, these profile points of these kids going missing are all in these same areas. They're all close to water. They're all near cave systems. And usually the, the, the child has some sort of like an autism or some sort of what would be considered a disability. And I mean, the more we start to encroach on land that we don't know about, people know more about what's in the ocean than what's in the forests. And that sounds crazy because we haven't even explored probably 1% of the oceans. But it's funny that the the forest and the big scary thing, like the scariest thing you can see, if if it's nighttime now when, you know, you're thinking about this, look out your window and look into the dark. And one of the scariest things you can see is a human face. Now, even if it was a tiger, which you wouldn't see in Australia, even if you looked at your back garden and you seen a tiger, you'd go, holy shit, there's a tiger. At least you can verify and confirm that it's a tiger and I can lock my door and call someone and come and get it. The most terrifying thing you can see is a human face because you don't know its intention. And where that comes from, they say, is from when we used to be cannibalistic as humans. So they say, oh, yeah, we, we'll create faces in things and we see faces and that's kind of like our body making us aware and we don't create faces in things. It's if, if you look out and see a human face, I believe that that fear is so strongly connected to the monster under your bed to this has been in our own folklore and it's in our mainstream TV, like monsters Inc. You've got all these new movies coming out where the big beast under the bed is now the good guy. And you can see like this narrative and agenda change where we're more accepting to these things that are strange. And if we keep going, like I have no doubt that whatever the being or entity is that is out there, it will be it will be verified. It will be photographed. Unfortunately, it will probably go through a time where we will disrespect that animal's rights 
beyond the point of no different to when the first settlers came over here and they took the native people and they they didn't understand the significance of them. And in order to learn about them, they encroached on their respect. And now, you know, as a generation, we 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 look back on the mistakes we made and, you know, made a, a dog's dinner of it. So with this animal, unfortunately, unless we can get, and I know there's a guy, I think it's in Canada, who is going through the court systems to get land protected specifically for uh, like the Sasquatch. And he's actually doing quite well because he's using the law and system. It doesn't matter if it's verified or not. If you look at the law, you can you can literally get it passed. It just depends on, I suppose, the, the intelligence of the, the person who's going to do that law. But unfortunately, if we don't protect the Yowie before we discover it, when it gets discovered, I feel sorry for that poor thing because it's going to be an absolute circus. And I think we'll do more harm than good if we don't go about it the right way. It's like looking at the animals that we've just discovered now. We've discovered them too late. See, if the if the Sumatran tiger had been the conservation had been underway before they even confirmed how many was there. You know, they should have been protected from day dot. You shouldn't have to apply for protection for an animal to get to a critical level. Yeah. And I would imagine that, the, yeah, we will compete with us directly. But if you look at the human evolution race, we're relying too much on technology, whereas the Yowie species doesn't. So at a time where there's 25 million Australians and only 3,000 Yowies, there will be a time in the future where whatever this species is, there'll be 25 million of them and there'll be 3,000 of us. And that's just the way the world works. It, you can't have energy in is equal to energy out. And every yin and yang, it's balance. And if we don't go about it the right way, that balance may not favor humans. You know, we... Humans would do far better if you look at these movies where if humans just were didn't have a brain to cause so much destruction and we just ate each other, we would be a very efficient animal when we do not damage on the earth. <laughs> you know so, what I mean? So, Tony, well, so if people want to, so if people want to are in WA in Perth or in that near that region of Woodridge. Do you want people to contact you and go out field researching with you? Yeah, and a hundred percent. And how do people I, I get in touch even, with you? Oh, I just go on um, my Facebook, Tony Spain, or I actually have a, a Facebook page that I use for a business I used to have called Tony's Wild Animal Encounters. So when I was up in Darwin, I used to bring like crocodiles and snakes out for like education for kids. So I might even use that banner just as a as a touch point for people because for me, I wouldn't focus it so much on being. Yeah, we research and that's the sole purpose. I would have it more family orientated, camping, survival with a dash of looking for yowies as an exciting thing on the side. Because I think you build up people's expectations when you say, all right, well, I want 50 people to call me and we're all going to solely go out with the intention of looking and finding a yowie. But the problem is I don't know the intention of those 50 people. Yeah, that's so true. So it only takes one of those people to be like, right, well... I'm going to go out, find all these spots, and then um, when these other 49 start off, I'm going to go back here with a team of 100 people. And so for me, it would be more so I would be very conscious of I would take people out as a family, community, social event where for the people there that are in the know, no different to how I take my family camping. And it's, oh, we're all going camping and fishing. I'm out there scoping the area and just seeing for things but they don't need to understand or know that and if they want they can get involved in the game of oh we're looking for it and it's all a big game so i know that there is a there is a seriousness and a a sincerity about when i do these things and that's the same for people is that going out in a group it should just be fun 
Because if you go out, how would you feel if you were in the bush and then all of a sudden you had 50 apes coming out specifically looking for you? <laughs> that <laughs> so wouldn't be you fun at the, all. <laughs> no. So if you had, if you were out on your own and you had 50 people that were just family orientated, communicating, living off the land, kayaking, barbecuing, you would be a lot more, I suppose, rested that consciously these people are there to do their own thing and consciously the majority of these people accept that I am real and in my time I'll let you see me. Given that this species, how it acts, like I, I look at it purely on paper as in this is what people have seen, this is what everyone has said. Like it doesn't matter to me what it even looks like or how it acts to the sense that on paper this is some sort of predatory animal that is a herbivore that is social that is conscious of itself and it is conscious of us and we don't know to what extent now if you want to go out and muck with something like that nah you go out there and you respect the land that it's on and, and you do your family thing and you let this animal study you because it will learn far more about us in terms of how it should deal with us because if you go out and start hunting something, it's like the you see in the media, you know, someone giving someone a kiss can look like someone's biting their face. It can get so misconstrued. If, if you go out with the intention of finding one of these and, and just investigating it, you're going to put this animal on a red alert and you're going to corner it. And you do not want to you wouldn't want to corner a chimp, you know, and yeah. a chimp is very closely genetically to us. But I'll guarantee you in any zoo I've ever worked in, the, the one animal that I fear ever getting out is a chimp because I know exactly what they can do. Yeah. Now, you want to have this animal that's out there. I reckon you just let it watch you, and if it gives you, it will let you see it. If it doesn't want to be seen and it doesn't want you to have an encounter, you won't. If it wants your enc encounter to be negative and horrifying and scary, you best believe that this animal, at the flick of a switch, he can make that encounter you have one of the most traumatic, terrifying things you'll ever experience in your life, and you won't be the same after it. Yeah. I and this fact, is, most of the you know, people, most of the people I speak to I, I, that I interview for AYA. Are, are exactly that extremely traumatized and it's a life-changing event oh um, yeah profound you're planning this as a not-for-profit or for-profit venture so you mentioned the the sustainable use so you were you planning mm -hmm. on like as, as taking out as a, as a guide yeah yeah something. like so it's a small, any, it's a small business sort of, yeah like i could i haven't thought about the the whole ins and outs of it. I think what it would be more so would be like a trust or some sort of public benevolent fund that would directly go to the land. You know, for me, like I don't like I'm retired, you know, I'm 29. And for me, it's, I just love going out and doing different things. And community is a big part for me. And I've just had my first baby, you know, she's only six months old, little Lexi. So my outlook on things has changed. So communities getting together, banding together and protecting their local environments. I mean, it's, it's, it's massive. We shouldn't rely on the local government. Like the local go government relies on us to kind of make decisions and then they act accordingly, but we shouldn't have to go that far. Like we can protect our own land and our own species if we know more about it. Cause I've had it where I'm no, I'm not the expert in any field, but I've been approached by local government on certain particular animals in terms of, well, what, what would you suggest and what is the best way to handle this? The government doesn't plan to think they know everything. They always kind of put it to a vote to the people. So then if anything goes wrong, they'll say, well, you ask for it. So where I live is that whole reserve. It's the Wilbinga National Park. And it's pristine. It's absolutely beautiful. And you've got four-wheel drive tracks going through it. I mean, you know, you get the odd few young fellas that kind of run up a bit of a muck out there. But as far as impact on the land and things like that, it's a beautiful area. So 
if we kind of come together collectively and I'm happy to kind of, I suppose, host it and take people out, but I want to just enable people to be able to do it themselves and protect that land. And especially with encounters, you know, when I worked in the zoo, one of the big things for me was, was mental health. And a lot of I've listened to a lot of the stories where I can hear it in those people's voice, the, the, the genuine sincerity of fear. And I mean, fear can fear can kill a man in the sense that what you said was that, you know, it's impacted on their lives significantly, even going forward. You know, I, I had a guy who actually contacted me and he was a, a police officer and he'd seen one of the Facebook things. I'd put up a post and something resonated with him that he gave me a call about an area I was going to check out. And he had just kind of initially was telling me, no, don't do it. Don't go there. And then I spoke to him about it to the point at the end, he wanted to come with me because what I would do with mental health when I was in the zoo, if I seen someone come in and they were, you know, and this was just off my own back, stress, depression, anxiety, I would bring that person, I'd single them out and I'd say, oh, do you want to come and, you know, feed the tigers? So I'd bring him in behind the scenes and you've got this tiger ram. He would come up and snarl and roar in your face. And at that moment in time, the person wasn't worried about their bills. You don't have time to be stressed, anxious or depressed at that moment in time. But what I would do is because of my comfortability there in that scenario, I talk them through it and we come out on the other side. And that's a huge building block for you know a human's development if they have had these negative things. And I believe a lot of people that have had these really negative encounters and terrifying encounters, I believe that there is well and truly going to be a time where they will have a similar encounter again, but it won't be like that. It, you, you, they've grown now as a people. They've, they've spent time thinking about this and they've let it, you know, to an extent affect them that the next encounter will probably be the, the most beautiful thing they've ever had. Because the thing was, they didn't understand why the encounter went that way. Animals and species in general, they don't just bite. Like 10 years I've been in the industry and I've got all my fingers and limbs. And that's from working with animals that are notorious for biting is because animals don't just bite. They let you know if you if, if you're oblivious to it or you're you're not kind of familiar with certain things, you, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get bailed up by an animal. No different to a person. Certain people you can talk to and get really close to and almost be leaning on them and talking into their ear. You try to do that with the wrong person and you'll get a punch in the nose pretty quick. And, and animals are the same. You've you got to understand that these negative encounters that have happened before, as bad as they are and as terrifying as they have been, you almost want to go back out again and understand understand that animal. Like that animal wasn't angry or aggressive to you. That animal was frustrated with, with an ignorance that we have as humans. And that's how I feel when I hear it. It's like, you know, I try to kind of play devil's advocate and be like, okay, well, did you know that that animal had two babies nearby? And that's this animal's first time having young. And this animal is just as confused as to where it is, because maybe where its normal territory was, it's just been shifted out. And you've met a mum on a really bad day, and she thinks that you're threatening her kids. She doesn't know your intention so so much as you didn't know that animal's intention. And it's a communication breakdown in that relationship, because both parties at one point didn't accept the other person or weren't empathetic to how the other person was perceiving each other. And this is like humans. How many times have you had an argument with your partner because you perceive a situation that is the outcome is the same, but your perception of it, you've miscommunicated and you end up shouting at each other and you end up all angry and frustrated and confused, but you make up after it. Now, even if you've had the worst fight of your life with someone and you're like, I hate them, I'll never talk to them again, they've ruined my life, yada, yada. There is a time where you take responsibility for your actions and you can then accept that, you know what, it takes two to tango. As much as I was fearful of that animal, 
I wonder if that animal now is sitting out there going, holy shit, I bumped into a guy last night and he shouted and roared and he had this, this water coming out of his eyes like venom. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I could imagine that the Yowie was like, holy shit, last night I seen this guy and he was wearing, he, he, he could shoot bullets from a distance or he had light in his hands. He, he could walk with light in his hands and, and he shone it in my eyes. And you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's take and give, you know, a lot of the time, I was thinking when I would hear so many stories, I'd be like, holy shit, like maybe I should be a bit more careful going out here on my own. And I'll go against a lot of the traditional lore, which is, you know, don't go out at night, don't go in the rivers at night and don't be alone. And especially not in significant weather events. And if you are on the spectrum in any way, shape or form, you definitely shouldn't go out there. But for me, it was like, oh, well, if I go out once, at least then if something did happen, I'd hope that I'd know at least what it was. <laughs> and, and it's, maybe your it's family that, wouldn't but you would know at least <laughs> yeah yeah and that was where i kind of went well for me to go out because i've been like i live out in this place and i spend a lot of time like I, i'm a night owl like i probably do like three four hours sleep so i love being out and about like nighttime is just so peaceful it's lit up by the moon you've got all sorts of weird and wacky lights in the sky out here as well like and that's another thing with sasquatch encounters a lot of people have a narrative that they don't want the whole Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and Yowie to be in any way, shape, or form associated with aliens. Because, look, Bigfoot's strange enough as it is. Don't go mixing up aliens and Starcraft and don't be giving people too much. You'll hurt their brain. But it's if you look at most cases, if the person telling the story about their encounter was aware and was actually watching the sky, nine times out of ten, I'll guarantee you that they would have had some sort of aerial lighting phenomena within the course of time in which they had that encounter because they seem to be kind of synchronized with each other, yep. whether they're kind yep. of working together or they're just, it's more of a commonality or it's just at that point in time, that person was noticing things more and was in a position to notice more. But I go out and I get the heebie-jeebies and then every now and again, you know, I kind of like the idea of if you're ever having a rough day, and you're just like feeling a bit defeated and deflated. What I do is I just walk out into the national park, into the pitch black, and I scare the shit out of myself. Because at that point in time, the worries of the materialistic world don't matter. Because now, your own imagination, you have to control your emotions when you go out. Because now you're starting to think things are looking at you and watching you. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But if you don't exercise that muscle in your brain, you won't know the feeling of being watched or the feeling of thinking you're being watched. And you'll you'll go out in the bush at night and you'll start to hear things move and you'll hear knocks and you'll hear all these. Now, you'll hear 10 knocks in a night, but only one of them may have been genuine. But you need to be spending the time out there like, um, I think it was, is it Dan? I've watched a few of his videos and I mean, it's excellent. I love that he's immersed himself out there with people and they're they're just being out there. They're not destroying the place and not uprooting things and setting traps they're just observing and reporting and, and that's about, what sorry you're talking about dean harrison dean that's the yes, one yeah dean, yeah. yeah brilliant yeah. I, I just yeah. i really enjoyed watching the few videos that he's put up because i'm like for me that's it that's how i would go out and study an animal that is the exact same way if i was going out you know and even the technology then that he's got but i think he's kind of uh he's got this aura about him that he knows exactly what the experience is and how it can be but I think there's a side to him. He also knows that if he's in his way and state, that's why since the negative encounter he's had, I don't believe he's had those kind of negative ones. And, and I think he knows himself where that one didn't go right or wrong. He met him on a bad day. And when he said these kind of things, that's where I'm like, right, this is where this, this is a species that he's clued on to how this thing is, is kind of thinking. And that's thinking like him. 
So we put our emotions onto things to try and relate to them more. And the fact that he could do that so quickly with this animal was like, hang on, this is why people can't shoot them. This is why people don't believe that they are a gorilla. It's because they can quickly empathize. He was angry. He was sad. He was looked confused at the start. I don't know if he looked like a human or a gorilla, but his eyes looked confused. And the fact that we can so quickly do that, I think is amazing. And then that's where, for me, it's just be open to it. And, you know, people listening might think, ah, oh, because you, you get interested and you hear all the stories and the evidence. And then all of a sudden, one day you'll have your significant encounter and you'll have to choose, you know, you'll be out in the middle of nowhere and you'll come across a print on the floor and you very quickly got to think, are you going to be accepting of where you are and what you're doing because you put yourself in that situation you know it's just because it's a national park doesn't mean that it's ours and we get to walk through it freely and if you walk into a national park you're signing up to potentially having this and unfortunately that is the way it is and these aren't bad things but you need to accept that if you go out in the woods today you're sure of a big surprise <laughs> you don't know what's out there <laughs> hey i've got a question for you too you mentioned a little bit earlier that you I think I heard this correctly, but that you think that the Yowie is a herbivore. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Right. Why do you, why do you well, think that? Well, not just the Yowies. I would imagine as a species entirely. A lot of where it initially came from was the availability of food, the lack of anyone talking of carnasal teeth, um, the jaws and I suppose uh, the general features of the animal having that kind of ridge on the forehead, that would equate for a smaller brain, larger muscle capacity going down into that thicker jaw. Um, probably very similar to something like a, a gorilla or a chimp. And even with like the, the smaller primates, I think it's, I don't know if it's new world or old world primates, they actually do have the, the, the carnasal teeth, but they're not necessarily for meat. It's for grabbing things like grapes. And I think berries was probably one of the things that was a profile point within the missing 411. And I think there's something very, very significant about areas that have berries because berries are just, they're in our folklore. They're in just about every kind of, if you think of your childhood growing up, for some reason, berries have always been in stories and they're always there because they're a great source of food. So I would imagine that the animal would be somewhat seasonal and like a chimp, like a chimp will eat meat once a month. It would eat meat every day if I had the ability to hunt. So humans, our initial diet would have been foraging and throughout the day picking up berries and fresh fruits and things like that that are available readily. And then when the opportunity presents itself, we would make a kill and, and eat meat. But we've got so advanced and so good at this process of eating meat that very rarely do people take the time to just walk out and just pick berries and, and things like that. And that for me is... If people have been out picking up wood, if people are out picking berries, this seemed to be another really crucial point where people were having interactions with this animal. So when I look at why I would think it would be omnivore and that it's solely to do with the fact that people have encounters where these animals can be highly aggressive, but the nature of where they are and what they're doing in the time of the day, is this animal out foraging and eating berries? If, there, if it was solely a meat eater and that, there would be other characteristics associated in terms of, you know, leftover remains and remains up in trees, which I'm sure do happen. But as far as if you were to look at the amount of times where someone has been in an area where foraging was maybe slim pickings, similar to like a grizzly bear, I would imagine dietary. I'd imagine the animal has that capacity 
to, to take down and do it. Whereas the path of least resistance and the easiest way is for even with big, massive animals eating small, but throughout the day of foraging, like an elephant, you would think, gee, he must need to eat at least a buffalo a day to keep himself going. <laughs> but what they do is they kind of mooch along and they'll take little bits of this, little bits of that. And the small, it's the quality as such, as opposed to the quantity. And then at the same time, if an elephant came charging out of the bush at you and killed you, <laughs> not saying he's going to eat you, but then look at hippos. So we, omnivore, carnivore, and these are human terms put onto animals that we use to classify, but animals don't live by our classifications. So we, generically, I would say this animal is more omnivorous than it is carnivorous. However, th that can change. And that can be from species to species, from culture to culture. If you have, you know, I've never really seen too many reports of these things being near deserts and things like that, because, you know, the, the land is quite desolate. It's nearly always um, like the topography is kind of uneven, usually thick forest damps, has to be a water source, and then usually some sort of bouldering or granite field around, which are all a certain kind of an ecosystem that matches in really well for large omnivores. Like in Australia, especially, like large predatory animals just seem to have died out. So in order to kind of stay in keeping with it, unless you evolve to start cooking and hunting proficiently, it would make more sense to just Australia has more natural resources and abundance of food than anywhere else I've ever been in the world. And I'm from Ireland and I've been all over. Um, I think it would just ecologically supporting the animal, it, it would be far easier than if it were to be running out in the open trying to catch down kangaroos or I don't know, maybe they could probably have the tools to trap them. I just... I've spoken to people who have observed them picking up kangaroo roadkill and or hunting down deer and and kangaroos so particularly so perhaps as you said perhaps it's an opportunistic thing that they're, they're, they're mm. they just happened to cross cross the, their the roadkill is interesting because i've had it coming down to woodridge where this was probably about three weeks ago and on the side of the road i was driving my van back and i'd seen oh, it was on my full beams and i could see there was a roof and it was at the edge of this road there's a bit of a it goes about two or three feet from the white line at the left side of the road, and then it drops off into a bit of a gully into the forest. And I remember seeing the roo being pulled down into that. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, a fox or something. And I I see these, I always like notice little things. And it's not till ages later, I think, oh, hang on, that was a bit odd. Because you think about it, like a 60, 70 kilo roo slowly being pulled off the road down into a ditch. I was kind of thinking a dog would have a jerking motion. A fox would be too small. And, and these are the kind of things that roadkill is readily available. And if it's fresh roadkill, you know, that's, that's good for eating, you know. Tony, thanks so much for talking to me. What a fascinating conversation. Have you got any other, anything else that you'd like to mention for the Yowie Central listeners? Yeah, one of the things that I'd initially got in contact for was I was really interested in the the smell that people have experienced as opposed to... I would like to narrow down what that foul smelling odor is because one of the things that was became apparent to me was that the the drug it's detro it's DMT and it's known for having a foul smell and it's to do with the perineal gland in humans. So we have DMT um, excreted from the perineal gland. I think it's two or maybe three times in our life. I think it's when you're born, um, when you die or near-death experience so the perineal gland is what gives people 
um, like the, that. Uh, the, pine, the pineal yeah. gland, you mean? The pineal gland. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. And a lot of the time when I'd heard people explain the smell before encountering the animal. So the phenomena that I was really thinking was that smell and people having a sickness afterwards or some sort of like hearing putting it onto them. I would really like to narrow down the chemical compound of that smell. A lot of people have talked of sulfur, yep. but I was trying to prove that there wasn't a correlation between that smell and the smell of, um, I think it's dedeltrimorphite, dedeltryptamine, or, yeah, that there is. I have heard of DMT. I can't remember what the the full term is. Yeah, I think it's dedeltryptamine or something, but that is known that people that, it smells, it has this pungent odour when it's burned. And a lot of people have talked of the smell of rotting eggs and, and smell of sulfur. So I just kind of thought, well, if someone is smelling that particular smell, when they're having the encounter, is that pineal gland, is it being engaged more than it's not? Because it's a very hard thing to study because you can't just say to everyone, can you stick this monitor in the middle of your brain, go out and have an encounter and tell me if it happens? You're the thinking, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're so you're thinking that we, the humans, the people having those experiences and sightings might be excreting that odour from their pineal gland themselves rather than it coming from an external source. Quite quite possibly. Like, have you ever smelt a flower and felt happy? Yes. <laughs> and do you then see that flower more beautiful when, after you smell it than when you first looked at it? <laughs> possibly, so yes. Yeah. If, if you can alter the perception of the beings around you, because, like, plants can do it. If, if you had the technology, um, and, and this would be in, like, some sort of quantum physics mechanical ways that if you could tune into the pheromones that plants give off and you had someone walk through that garden you could alter their perception of those said plants so if you're an animal um if you've ever grabbed a, a snake or a lizard if you grab it and you're too aggressive with it or you're you're too rough it'll excrete like it's this odor it's a pungent odor like a skunk mm-hmm. a skunk secretes an odor now physiologically you smell that and it's ooh i want to get away from it so that animal isn't trying to be offensive it's not it's it's being defensive yeah so by doing so your perception of that animal has now changed because that looked like a cute fluffy thing that you can go up and pat now it smells rotten you keep away from it so on a higher level then in terms of humans that have the the, the psychedelics and have this other kind of way of doing things if they were to then <laughs> If the average person goes out who hadn't experienced anything that was psychedelic and went out and next thing had this profound encounter that's now affected them for the rest of their life, was that not a psychedelic encounter because it was based on sight, smell and feeling? And that's in its rawest form. That is what these encounters are. For some people, they're highly addictive. You know, you want to go out and you want to get that adrenaline buzz and you want that unknown. For other people, they've tried it once and they said, I'd never do that again. Well, for me, that's no different than someone who might take a drug once and become addicted. Someone who may have a drug once and have a terrible experience. And so humans are basic in their nature that everything is very similar in terms of you can quantify it and explain that encounter. You could then marry it or give like an analogy to a drug or you could use that same analogy to meeting certain people. So it turns on how my way of quantifying things is if I can break it down into a form that most people understand something will trigger with one person out there that might go, oh, hang on, shit. Maybe that was just a bad experience I have. And in order to kind of the last 10 years, I've been living in fear of going in forest. Maybe I need to go back out and experience it when I'm a better person emotionally and mentally. So as when I go out, I don't give off 
that you, what how do you reckon you smell when you when you're afraid of an animal i tell you what, animals can smell fear and they don't like it and fear is the smell of sweat they can smell if you're you know people shit themselves scared yeah and that is a foul emitting odor that then leaves a negative taste you imagine the animals around us can taste and smell far far better than us you know like probably four or five hundred times that we can measure so you imagine when we go out if we're giving off a vibe of insecurity and fear and and <laughs> animals don't like that they they see that and what they do is they kill it straight away you know so for the people that have went out and had a fearful encounter if you look at dogs Dogs will attack like hyperactivity or insecurity and they just snap them out of it. It's like when you grab your friend, you, you slap them and say, snap out of it. <laughs> you got to be balanced. You got to be calm. And so I think chemically is probably where there's a lot more research to be done in terms of narrowing down what is the chemical component that the human is experiencing for starters, because we can measure that. And then as time goes on, see, we're so busy trying to study the Yowie that we're not studying how we are being around the Yowie. If we know more about ourselves in these encounters, indirectly, we will gain information of the entity that we can't actually put our hands on. Indeed. We do it, you know. It's actually, it's something that I, that I, Dean and I ask people now more often when I'm interviewing a witness is, how are you feeling then? What was your emotional state before you had that encounter? Because mm. there's the, the in order to to research further into whether there is something there about their behaviour and their 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 thoughts the the vibe mm. that they're putting out uh, whether that's has anything to do with the fact that they they then had a sighting yeah it's very yeah. interesting well it's like you go out to a pub um, and depending on your mood you're most likely to then bump if you go out and you've got one of these young fellas who's out egging on and looking for a fight well all it takes is for him to bump into someone who's of the same mindset and then bob's your uncle fanny's your aunt you got a fight happening but you also have the same thing if you have someone who's going out and just being accepting and doesn't know and just you will meet another accepting person or if you just go out with no intention at all and you just want to go out and just not be noticed and, and be a bit more of an introvert and just enjoy it you will bump into an entity that is similar to that and you just both won't even notice each other because you're so introverted. So I think there is a very, very fine line when you go out. The intent going out, if, if everyone said to you, oh, look, my intention going out was um, I'm grateful for the land and I respect the land and I love it and I just want to be at peace with it and I'm having a great time and everything's good. And then all of a sudden it all went to shit. That to me wouldn't make sense in terms of how you would attract the absolute opposite. You know, if you went out to have the best day of your life and all of a sudden this thing happened and you looked at it in a way that it was so negative that it's then affected you, it's like, well, did you really truly understand how you were feeling that day when you went out? You know, if someone tells me, well, I went out and I felt like this, 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 and this, I would then go deeper and go, well, what was it that made you feel like that? Because you'll be very surprised that there's probably some sort of commonality between all these people may have said they all feel different. So that to me wouldn't be to, to have a science that's too, um, too broad. It's too ambiguous. So I would have to ask another set of questions to quantify it down to the thing was, what is, what, what, why did you go for a walk that day? What was the date? What was the weather? Are, like you would have to rule out absolutely everything to see it. there would be something in common with every single person. And there would be what, what was the deciding factor that on that day you felt like this? What was the deciding factor on that day that you even went for a walk? What was the deciding factor on the time? 
And you would literally have to ask a thousand questions. And again, and in the end, the answer will be right in front of you. And you'd be like, oh, well, for fuck's sake. All we had to do was say, did you have two Weetabix for breakfast? Yes. Ah, well, that's what it is. And it, <laughs> Mother Nature loves irony and, and just things like that, you know? Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much for for chatting to me. I'd love to have you on the show again whenever you want to come back on and give us an update as to how your how your research is going over there. That'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, and let me know. Let me know if you have any sightings or encounters. I will, I will. I'm, you'll be the first to know. Yay. That was Tony from Woodridge in Western Australia. What do you think of his sustainable use strategy? Isn't that interesting? Let me know what you think via... Central at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. We're out of time for this week, folks. Yowie Central will be back next week, same time, same place, on 94.9 Main FM. I'll catch you next week. Stay safe. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Your spine. Here in Christ.